friends to a voyage of theological discovery, an evolving podcast about Star Trek Voyager, theology and ethics. Sit right back and enjoy us as we go on this trip to the Delta Quadrant and beyond. Hello friends, it's Will Nicholas here again for the second episode of Voyager uh, the Theological Journey, and uh, I'm joined again by our, our team, um, Lindsay Cullen and Elizabeth Rain. And uh, we, we discovered last week that there was so much to talk about uh, the, uh, the series as a whole and the cast um, that we made the decision to, uh, to come back this week and talk about the episodes one and two pilot, The Caretaker. Uh, if you'd like to check the synopsis for that, you can go back to last week and listen to Lindsay uh, read that out for us. But, you know, as a, as a quick summary, um, they go to find the Marquis in the Badlands. They get zapped to the other side of the universe in the Delta Quadrant. Um, they encounter some strange, weird aliens, and they have to uh, make a choice between destroying their only way home uh, or, or saving local people, and they choose the local people. And now they're stuck 75 light years from home. So that's Voyager. Um, how, how are we this week, uh, Lindsay and Elizabeth? Well, I'm real good, Will, because I'm on holidays, so uh, I'm, I'm enjoying, you know, uh, recording our podcast while looking, looking out at the sea from our apartment, which is very nice indeed. Fantastic. You can podcast from anywhere these days. And Elizabeth, you are you well? Um, I am well, but unlike Lindsay, I am in my first week back after an exhausting holiday where my husband had a knee replacement. And I have had to do many things that um, weren't especially relaxing. So I'm in the opposite kind of chair to what Lindsay's sitting in at the moment. Yep. Uh, and and I, I'm also in my first week back at work as well. Um, and uh, my first week juggling editing two podcasts, but very happy to have uh, released uh, season one, uh, season three, episode one of Deep Faith Nine this morning. Just wanted to quickly just do a bit of housekeeping if we can. Um, in order to release two podcasts under the one SoundCloud um, account, um, that that uh, podcast, um, I guess, platform is now called Never Odd or Even Faith in Fiction. So if you're looking for us, you might have to search for us under Never Odd or Even Faith in Fiction. Uh, and you'll find um, all of the podcasts there that um, that are there, which is actually two, Deep Faith Nine and Voyager um, uh, Theological mm -hmm. Journey. Um, so you can find us there. Um, but the easiest way to find us ever is actually just to go to oddrev.com um, and actually uh, look for those there. Or you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud. We are, we're very keen to hear from you, our listeners, and we're, we're really loving the uh, the feedback that we're getting uh, and uh, the interaction that we're getting and Elizabeth you got some uh, some good feedback about uh, the discussion around uh, the, the masculine feminine roles of uh, of of uh, captains last week yes I did one of my good friends who I know in person and not just on Facebook felt that you had really sold short the second Starfleet captain um, Picard and uh, she thought you'd given him um, a tough rap that he had a lot of compassion and these feminine qualities that we had been talking about. Yes, uh, Picard's an interesting one, mm. and I, mm. I think you're right that he does have some uh, qualities which are mm. certainly quite different from the, the, the first sort of uh, stereotypical captain we have with James T. Kirk. 
Um, but I, I, I still think that, uh, uh, particularly in some of the later episodes where you see Picard engaging with his family, it's quite a different uh, family dynamic than the one that, that Jane Way is evincing with her, uh, was it fiancé, partner? I can't remember the, the designation. Um, but uh, Picard has a, a very trained and formal relationship with his family because he has chosen basically to be married to Starfleet rather than uh, rather than continuing in a familial sort of relationship. Oh, they're fighting words. All right, there's a challenge for you, Victoria. That's right. And look, it's really good to hear from our our listeners, um, and um, and we really want this to be a, a community activity. So please don't hold back. Uh, if Lindsay says something you don't agree with, then jump straight in on top of that and uh, and pick him up. Um, we're going to get straight into this today because we don't we we obviously really love to talk about our characters, but we also have to talk about the story. So uh, the caretaker. Um, just as a bit of a, um, I guess, a, a, a fly over the surface, um, what are our themes that have jumped out for us today as we look at The Caretaker as a story? Well, one of the two things that have jumped out at me is The Caretaker himself. Um, he seems to me um, to be in a position where you could consider him like a semi-deity or even a deity to the Ocompa, and I think that's an interesting position because... He's making all sorts of decisions about their lives and they were responding in almost a cult-like way, I thought, at times. And the second thing that interests me in this episode is the ethical dilemma of just um, whether or not the array is destroyed and how that was taken, and um, especially in the light of the lecture that Captain Janeway actually gives to the caretaker about the Ocompa before she makes that decision. So they're two things that I am interested in. Yes, I think that um, theme of, of uh, divine or semi-divine or at least all-powerful figures is an interesting one that crops up regularly in Star Trek. And uh, it, it reminds me of how Trek uh, operates as a sort of a modern equivalent to the, the Roman or Greek myths uh, in that you've got these divine beings, but they're always portrayed as having very human uh, emotional characteristics and and wants and desires and and uh, even warring desires within their psyche and uh, they, they certainly don't fit into the 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 mold of the judeo-christian god as we often think about that uh, but remind me much more of sort of uh, roman or greek uh, mythologies mm. uh, it is fascinating that um in star trek especially uh, a god sometimes can be boiled down to as an alien creature with powers we don't understand yet. And it's kind of like that whole idea of magic as science we haven't quite grasped. Um, and uh, I'll never forget my, um, uh, my, my horror as I watched uh, the Star Trek movie The Final Frontier um, that uh, potentially, I, I think when I'm evaluating Star Trek movies, it's the, uh, it's the even ones that are okay. It's the odd ones you've got to watch out for. And uh, Star Trek uh, Five, um, the final frontier. They do go looking for God, uh, and when they find God, Kirk asks a question. Um, what does so God there is need this with theme all the way through of these ultra powerful beings that actually um, uh, have have abilities to be able to manipulate the universe in ways we don't understand. And so, it's not unusual then to worship them 
like gods. Actually, I agree with you that the odd-numbered uh, movies are, are, are the the poorer movies in terms of their actual qualities. But but I, I actually quite liked um, what Kirk did in that particular movie, where he questioned the the god status of this being, and I think in fact um, relativized that in in a way which, as Christians, we would agree with that mm. that you know the fact that a being is there and can do things that we can't understand uh doesn't make them uh god in the way that we as christians would see god's ultimate character um unfolded in scripture and uh, the tradition i think that's right and it reminds me of something a meditation teacher once said to me um i used to regularly go uh, and practice Taoist meditation and the opinion that this particular person had, and I don't know whether it's part of Taoism or he just had read it somewhere, was that whenever you meet a being or in, or encounter, shall we say, rather than meet a being that is a higher dimension than you, you will think that being a deity because they will operate with powers and in different ways that you don't understand. So we as third dimensional beings, if we have some encounter, for example, with a fourth or fifth dimensional being through our meditation, that it's somehow there's a wormhole forms, then you will think that person, that being is a God because it will be moving and thinking and doing and being in a way that is beyond in many ways your comprehension. So that being looks divine. So therefore we label it a God where it's just really a fifth dimensional being, if that makes sense. And I found that an interesting concept. Absolutely. And it's not just a, um, uh, I guess, a Star Trek concept. You see this in Stargate um, with the, mm. uh, the gold moving from one place to another and people worshipping them because of their power. Uh, and we also uh, come across it um, uh, in, uh, in a number of other science fiction uh, realities where where the, 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 I guess the qualification for being a god or godlike is just being able to do something that, that others cannot. Um, and, um, and, and uh, like, I think that there's, a, that there's a, as Lindsay said, and as Captain Kirk said, uh, there has to be more to it than, than just being more powerful uh, than others. Given, given that sort of introduction to the caretaker, I mean, I, I'm interested then to um, uh, move on to that second thing that you raised uh, there, Elizabeth. So, I, I mean, just to put people back into the picture, the idea is that this caretaker uh, feels that he owes the Okampa people. Uh, he, he's done something in the past which destroyed their environment and their planet. And so he created this underground place for them to live and provides them food and energy and so forth. Um, and, and, and now is coming to the end of his lifespan, which is interesting for a semi-divine being to have a, a, a temporal mm. lifespan, but anyway. Um, and, uh, and you were talking about the, uh, the, the contrast between what Janeway says to him and and then what Janeway does. Do you want to unpack a bit that that speech of Janeway's and what grabbed you about that, and and how you then see it leading on to uh, attention with her actions? Yeah, sure. Um, when she encounters him and and she understands he's dying, and she also understands he's attempted to 
procreate with various beings that obviously don't fit. And I did not know he was a spore. Was it sporocystian? or some sort of divine fungi, which I find fascinating. Having <laughs> not thought about fungi in that way at all. Um, He's a fun guy to be with. Yes. Oh, gee, that's bad, Lindsay. But he, he doesn't that's take bad. up mushroom. Oh, dear, that's even worse. <laughs> Talk about dad jokes. Dear, dear listeners, I shall never do such things. I will leave that to Lindsay and to Will, the dad jokes. So we have this life form that thinks he can mate with mammals, which is really strange um, given his particular life system or what he is. But anyway, he's dying. And when she realises that and she's convinced of that, she gives him a great lecture. Did you ever consider allowing the Okamba to care for themselves? <laughs> They're children. Children have to grow up. We're explorers, too. Most of the species we've encountered have overcome all kinds of adversity without a caretaker. It's the challenge of surviving on their own that helps them to evolve. Maybe your children will do better than you think. When he says, I have to protect the Okomba and I have to, I can give them at least five years by storing more energy and making sure this, that and the other happens. He gives him a real lecture about not letting them growing up about keeping them in a childlike state, about allowing them to remain dependent and not actually learn through um, trial or learn through experience and be able to grow resilience and to actually make some of their own decisions and actually be responsible in some way for their own destiny. Um, and I thought that was quite a good speech and that she raised some really valid things because when we meet the Ocompa, I feel what she is reflecting on them is quite true because, as I said, there's some cult-like things about them when they say, but the caretaker wants or the caretaker does or we can't do that because the caretaker won't like it or whatever. Um, and, and it's good points that she raises. And then it just seemed to me when almost in a split second she decides well, we're going to destroy the array because we can't abandon the Ocompa, seemed to fly in the face somewhat of the words that she had um, said to the caretaker. So I felt there was some tension there that she was almost, worth exploring. She almost takes on um, some of the caretaker's responsibility um, in making that decision mm. on their behalf. Um, and now the caretaker's report card doesn't look great here. Uh, so what we have is a, a very powerful life form that accidentally damages uh, the Ocompa's planet and then out of a sense of guilt uh, then provides them with all of their needs uh, which impairs their development and when he's dying in order to continue to provide them with their needs and stunt their development he abducts life forms throughout the galaxy tries to uh, procreate with them uh, causing them to develop uh, terrible um, tumors and maladies um, and and then and then dies leaving them there's a it's a it's a pretty um it's a pretty pretty poor record um, that uh, his prime motivation here seems to be guilt about the way his power is used well, it's almost like a modern-day fossil fuel company in league with a politician destroying the planet with climate change. Um, 
I thought of that, you know, it, it did remind me of that and leaving Mad Max on the surface to to destroy what whatever remains of that planet, the Kazon are gonna you know, you know, rip it up and tear it up. The only difference being is they're not fighting over oil, um, they're fighting over water, so it's a different liquid substance. But I think that's the really um good portrayal that you've given there, Will of the caretaker. I mean he has these immense powers, but you have to wonder how he's using them. It's not so much he's using them now for ill, but he's not necessarily using them for good either. Yeah. Oh, I, I think it definitely is for ill. And, I mean, it, it, it's a pretty simple example of, uh, you know, someone who believes that the uh, ends justify the means. And, you know, his his yes. end in protecting the Akumpa might, might be, you know, judged uh, morally good, although we've pointed out the, the patronising and, patriarchal aspects of that um but you know the the fact that he abducts other other beings and and uh, i mean you know he he's meant to have this unlimited power but somehow he can't abduct them from the other side of the universe in a safe way you know half the crew gets killed uh, for him to get his hands on the others so you know it's a it's a, a very morally dubious activity that he's uh he's doing um, I, I do think to, to give the writers probably credit, I, I'm not sure that he's necessarily trying to procreate with the, the mammals. I think what he says is that he's looking for a matrix which is able to uh, hold his life essence. So it, it might well be some, you know, non-sexual way of reproduction using uh, their, their life form as some kind of uh, vehicle for for something uh, I, I I don't know, <laughs> Lindsay. It's still techno babble for procreation, as far as I'm concerned, and, and we're we're determined not to get into the ponfar this week. So, um, you know, we'll... <laughs> well, he does use the word procreate. Well, actually, Janeway says that initially. She says, "What do you mean you're trying to procreate?" And he agrees that he is. However, yeah. he's trying to do that, and that might not be an actual physical encounter. If he's got the brain the size of a planet that he seems to have, what on earth thought made him think a fungi could find any kind of um, similarity and procreate with a completely different form of life? I don't understand why he did not get that. And it's, uh, it's it reflects his complete misunderstanding of other life forms and other. So even even yes. the tearing out of out of uh, the the um, alpha quadrant of of our of our crew here to the other side is is a little bit like using a pipette to actually pull microbes out of a petri dish you know and when we do that i mean who knows you know how many of those microbes might be hurt or destroyed or damaged along the way but as long as we get our appropriate sample and we can actually see if they'll actually meet the needs of our current uh, current experimental requirement then we're happy and so from his perspective he's he's kind of going okay well it's acceptable losses for some of the crew to die if i've got a chance of being able to find the genetic material that i need ah collateral damage has come up and that's been something of course used in so many wars in recent decades that we don't talk about civilian deaths anymore we talk about collateral damage and that seems to me what the caretaker is actually causing here and he's not using his powers for good. Why couldn't he use them to reform the Kazon, for example? 
Wow. I mean, yeah. surely he could have done something there so Mad Max wasn't rampaging over the face of that planet being unpleasant. You know, maybe something could have happened there that could have been good instead of him abducting life forms left, right and centre from all over the universe. The Kazon continue to be a menace right throughout the first series. Um, so, and we get that classic line, you have made an enemy today, you know, like we're here. Oh, she'd made an enemy before. <laughs> I thought that was just a load of Cogswallop coming from Mad Max there. Yeah, because he was cranky, he already, you know, he'd, when they were on the planet and she produced enormous canisters of water, if he had half a brain, which clearly he doesn't, he would have bargained with her and done it in a realistic way because obviously there was a great gift being offered there. But no, Man Max can't do that, can he? So as far as I'm concerned, he was always going to be an enemy. And I guess you need that. Otherwise, you've got no tension in um, the story, do you, <laughs> to develop it? Yes, although I think that uh, many, many Star Trek uh, Voyager viewers <clears throat> quickly decide that the Kazon are, are not an enemy that we really enjoy and they do fade pretty quickly unlike you know someone like uh, the klingons who are introduced in the original series and then and then continue to evolve and play different roles i, I wanted to I, I think we all agree that the caretaker is a bit of a moral mess and uh, all Indeed. sorts of dubious things going on but I, I wanted to actually push back a bit at you um elizabeth with regard to janeway um because i i, I think um, I agree entirely that uh, her speech to the caretaker about allowing children to grow up uh, is a good one. But I think the interesting thing in that analogy, and I'm, I'm speaking as a parent myself, um, and uh, I'm here podcasting at my holiday house while Suzanne's out uh, taking Gailey for a driving lesson. And, and, you know, whether it's driving or whether it's any of the other things that are part of growing up and learning new things, you do it gradually. You, you, don't, you don't put your daughter in a car and say, OK, let's jump on the freeway and, uh, and zoom down to Sydney and see how you go. You, you start by, you know, going around an empty car park and getting the hang of, of steering and braking and, and whatever. And I think... For Janeway, the question about the array was not, do we allow the Akompa to grow up? It's, do we throw them in the deep end with the Kazon with no protection at all and just, yeah. you know, hope, hope that they swim? Where they won't um, survive, or, yeah. Where they won't survive. Or, or do we, in fact, get rid of this pressing um, imminent danger and then allow them to carry on with their lives. And I mean, that's what happens is that once the array is destroyed, um, they are left on their own and they will have to work out how to survive uh, with the absence of the caretaker, whether they're going to gradually move to the surface, how they encounter the Kazon in doing that. So, so she is allowing them to then evolve in a more natural way, but, but she gets rid of that imminent threat to their very existence uh, that's there immediately. So I, I'm on Janeway's side uh, on that one, I have to say. I'm not again Janeway as such. I just thought there was some tension there between her speech and then her subsequent action, which, let's face it, she might have been thinking about it, but we don't ever see her consult with her crew about it or talk to them how they feel about this. She does assume, like the caretaker, the supreme decision-making role and delivers it quickly in that 
in that um, second there. It's just, no, we're not doing this, we're doing that, and then, boom, it's gone. Um, I thought a little bit more thought might have been appropriate at that point of time or some consultation about it and not having, and if you've got hindsight, Lindsay, which I don't, because I haven't seen future episodes and how they pan out. Um, and think, there's I always the potential that decision could be a disaster as well. You don't know. And I don't know what thought processes she's put into this because we're not, that's not revealed at this point in time. So it just seemed to me she was making a decision on the run in some ways. And I don't mean it was not ethical, but I just think it wasn't clear cut as what you might see it now with hindsight, which I'm not privileged to have at this point in time. There's also some foresight there as well, because I think one of the plot devices the writers are bringing in is they want to introduce the concept of the prime directive of the Federation. Captain, any action we take to protect the Okapa would affect the balance of power in this system. The prime directive would seem to apply. So how will the Voyager crew um, deal with this, this prime directive of the Federation, which is about non-interference uh, and allowing cultures to develop on their own? And uh, we've seen, you know, various plot devices and uh, entanglements and story issues where that's gone wrong and people have become too involved and also where uh, people have become not involved enough. And so Janeway's trying to work through this in her mind and saying, well, I know I have this prime directive. Um, I, I'm already in this up to my neck. Um, and I have to make decisions now that will actually affect mm. the culture here, uh, the culture of the crew I'm a part of, um, and and um, the reputation of the Federation, even though we're a long way from home. So she, um, I, 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 I guess... Um, I guess at first glance it could look like she made a speedy decision, but she has mm. all of that training behind her. And I mean, we have all of this, what happens next in Voyager in front of us. Uh, but that's, I think they've introduced this theme of the prime directive early for that reason, to create that tension that you're picking up between um, uh, the, the, the statement she makes about the caretaker and her own behavior as a captain and representative of the Federation. Alongside of this is always the assumption they're going to know what to do with the array because the array is the way of them getting back to their place in the universe. But that is predicated on their ability to get into the array and understand how it works and make it send them back, which may or may not be a fool's paradise. I don't know. Um, so if, if there's doubt about that too, about, you know, do we really understand this complex thing that seems to be able to do magical things with starships from all over the universe um, and we don't get it, well, uh, the least we can do is then protect these people and help them, as Lindsay says, to develop and actually find a way to grow and survive and do things like that. I don't know. that. I thought of that too and I don't know if that's relative or not. Oh, that's interesting. I, I hadn't actually considered that, Elizabeth, but I think that's important. I, I'd always just assumed that that uh, you know they would work out how to use the array to go home. But as you're pointing out, that's not not a done deal. And even if no. they do, if it causes the same sort of uh, you know disruption and and violence to the the ship as the trip here. They might, you know, lose the rest of the crew on the on the on the trip back. So um, I think that's exactly. an interesting thing I hadn't hadn't really twigged with. 
and there's a plot device in there uh, that that's often in these things called Deus Ex Machina, the God in the Machine. It's when there's oh, yes. suddenly a, a solution to the problem that wasn't apparent beforehand because the, well, largely it's in the story because the writers decided that's the way they were going to solve the problem. And, and that does happen a lot in Star Trek. Um, but I, I really love it the does. phrase God in the machine. Um, this idea that, that uh, and I've, I've seen it in my own life as I'm going around, that I'll be really worried and uptight about something that I've got no control over whatsoever, and then all of a sudden it just solves itself. And I wonder whether or not there are script writers out there who are writing you know, my story who have just gone, oh, look, we'll just write in on page four uh, that this issue is going to resolve itself via these technobabble means. Um, and, and, I mean, it brings us back to that huge question around agency and predestination about choice about intervention and, and lack of intervention so there's a lot of really interesting god stuff that's actually in this episode that's that you could miss easily and that's kind of sitting under the surface like the ocompa so just coming back mm. to to that uh question of the prime directive will because i'm interested in your take on that i, I was thinking about the prime directive the other day um and if I understand it right from my knowledge of Star Trek lore, the prime directive is not necessarily about non-interference with any other species. It's specifically related to engagements with species that don't have um, uh, space travel. Um, so for me, it, it it makes sense in operating a little bit you know, like guidelines around power differentials that, uh, you know, it, and it, it buys into that uh, thing that you were raising, Will, about how, um, you know, technology, technology sufficiently um, advanced is going to look like magic or like a, a deity. And they're mm -hmm. saying, well, if you are that far advanced on a species that they don't have space travel, don't interfere with them. But once they gain space travel, and this is the whole point, of course, of the of the uh, second is it the second next generation movie, the one with um, where they gain gain light speed travel. That's when you then get um, welcomed into the family of um, the Federation or the family of engaging spacefaring species. So I think the Prime Directive makes some sense in that. Uh, kind of context there's a, a, a guard around a power differential between very advanced and less advanced species but you've got some real questions about it I know I was just having a look online to see whether I could get a, a uh, an actual uh, definition of the prime directive um, and um, uh, sometimes it's referred to as Starfleet's fleet's general order one uh, but it's kind of, um, it comes from Jonathan Archer's first uh, statement in the episode, Dear Doctor, back in 2151. Someday people are going to come up with some sort of doctrine or something that tells us what we can and can't do out here, a should and shouldn't do. But until somebody does, they've, uh, they've drafted, uh, until somebody tells me they've drafted that directive, I'm going to have to remind myself every day that we didn't come out here to play God. And so the Prime Directive's role then is to actually ensure that humanity um, or the Federation doesn't actually take on that role that we've been talking about here of, of becoming God just because we have more power or technology or, or, or understanding. So it's a, it's a 
it's I guess a fascinating insurance that uh, right from the very beginning Gene Roddenberry's wanting to build into the future of humanity to say we need to uh, to, to remember that we are not God um, and that it's not up to us to decide who lives or dies who begins or ends um, who gets or doesn't get so it's a really yeah it's a fascinating concept um, that we've been talking through here about about the caretaker as God, about us as God, about captains as God, and, and, and I guess images of God that we might um, want to play with. So God should always, you know, sit back and not interfere. Well, that's what the Federation would say in the Prime Directive. But, uh, <laughs> I, you know, like if that were to happen, if that were to be the way that, they say, the Christian God or the, the Judeo-Christian God were operating, uh, then um, we would actually be in a situation where Jesus became a violation of the prime directive. Um, and so, you know, that, that incarnation um. and dwelling with us, uh, and even things like the prophet Muhammad or, 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 or other ways in which religions have actually talked about God connecting or reaching out to or, or wanting to be with humanity, um, would all become violations of God's prime directive. So I, I'd have to dispute then that, that the prime directive of Star Trek is actually the prime directive um, of of God, uh, whatever that might be for you. And I suppose it depends on how you want to define incarnation and how you want to define um, interference. Yep. So is incarnation interference? Does someone like Jesus actually have the capacity to interfere in inverted commas with humanity? in a way that the God of the Old Testament clearly does by doing all these miraculous things, including plagues and floods and conquests and all sorts of other things. I'll surf the line of heresy here, but um, the Christian God actually uh, mingles genetic material with and procreates with a human being that he actually... Uh, I mean, at least in this case, God asks Mary if it's okay first and gets consent, <laughs> unlike the unlike the, the caretaker. But there... There, I mean, the reality is that 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 that, that God uh, interferes with or, or gets involved with humanity to the to the to the most um, intimate and genetic level. I, I'm sure that well, an in angel, this story, yes. I, I'm not sure that an angel appearing and announcing that you are going to become pregnant counts as gaining consent. I can see some legal difficulties there. <laughs> Well, I'm just wondering whether or not there were other well, appearances guess... and the angel went to other houses and said, oh, hello, uh, yeah, I'm just uh, wanting to know you're on the list of people that we're going to make the, uh, the son of God with. And they said, look, I'm sorry, no, I'm not interested. And the angel goes, okay. So, so you know, like I, I'm not suggesting that Mary wasn't God's first choice. But what I'm, what I'm saying is that, that, that there, there is a sense in which we don't actually have the narrative where Mary says, no, nah, look, this is too much, I can't do this. Um, instead, we have the Magnificat instead. But but yeah, look, I, I, I agree. I'm I'm. Um, Hang on a minute. I'm playing with the story very broadly at the moment. Yes, uh, Elizabeth. You are. And that's just Luke. Um, you can't just say that generally because we've yep. got four Gospels, and that only happens in the Gospel of Luke. In the Gospel of Matthew, the angel talks to Joseph. That's true. I mean, it's very patriarchal. Mary does not have a choice. She suddenly finds herself with child and Joseph is about to divorce her and the angel appears to Joseph and says, hang on a minute, this is how it all happened and it's all right, dude, you can go ahead and marry her. So, you know, who knows what happens as far as, as Matthew is concerned. 
But I have to say that I'm not going to hang my hat on this being a true story. So people out there, I, I think this is the story that we get in our narratives. I don't think it's history. Yep. Yeah, oh, look, I'm happy with that. I like to play with the spiritual fiction um, side of things, and I think yep. that that's actually uh, really useful. Um, and it, it is part of following that prime directive about saying we don't get to play God with what we decide is 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 the story or not. We're, so uh, we, we've really begun to unpack the story here, and that's been a really helpful way of, of thinking about um, the way in which gods interact. And I think one of the things that we have to bear in mind constantly with this is that interpretations of a story um, don't define the story. And in actually the true richness of any story is actually being able to hear and listen and, and, and work on understanding multiple interpretations of any story, whether it's Voyager or Luke, um, that's really, really important. Yep, that's right. And there's always things within stories we can gain. There's truths within there that aren't dependent on historical or factual veracity as such. They, you know, mythology is a very rich thing that teaches us many things. Just coming back to the whole prime directive um, issue, I, I was kind of running around in my mind as we were talking, well, if, if the prime directive for God isn't non-interference, is there one? And, and I think one of the things that at least some parts of the Christian tradition have uh, had as something like a prime directive is not non-interference, but not taking away human agency. Uh, and so while uh, God might uh, be engaged with the creation in different ways, at least some parts of the Christian tradition, not necessarily all of it, um, have generally uh, tried to think about that in a way such that human agency isn't taken away and that, that humans still have the capacity to respond to what God is doing within the creation. I think that human agency is actually part of the whole deal in the sense that God really has no agency on, on earth except through human beings or living beings as such. We don't have a deity that, you know, blows up the enemy in a war or, you know, pushes the floodwaters back with his pinky or blows out the fires. It does not work like that way on on our planet and with humanity. Um, what we have, I suppose, is stories and mythology and a guidebook of sorts that tells us that the kingdom of God could look like this, which is a place of equality and justice and fairness and peace and all of those other things. And it's basically up to us to follow that and to kind of, I suppose, find ways of tapping into what the divine wants in a sense um, and actually follow that through because there isn't a God up there sitting there with lots of tools and actively changing the course of stuff. And that's a it's huge risk us. for God, isn't it? I mean, it's a huge risk because we're actually terrible at this. We, we, we're not we very are. good we at suck. making the right decisions when it comes to justice and love and care. And yeah, so look, I think... I think that's one of the great paradoxes of all time is that God knowing mm. us and, and knowing who we are still gives us this choice um, and doesn't take that away uh, from us, which is really fascinating. 
And I think what you're saying, Elizabeth, uh, with which I entirely agree, but it's not necessarily the way that all Christians see things. And I think there are a lot of Christians that actually do see that God, you know, tinkers with the universe and, and, and pokes God's finger in to, to create certain things or to give you the parking spot at the right time or oh. whatever it, it might be. Um, and, and, and I mean, it's interesting, I think for me, and I, as I said, I agree with you, for me, this is actually one of the signs that puts something like the caretaker in a different category yes. to the way yeah. that I, I see the divine. Absolutely. That, 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 that this is a being who is on the same level, at least ontologically speaking, as the crew, uh, perhaps with more power, but doing the same th sorts of things to interact with the, the physical universe uh, in different ways. Um, and, and, and for me, that's actually something different from the way that God engages with uh, the universe in, in a way that I think is transcends that uh, direct physical interaction. And we'll get yeah, to, to look agree. at that. We'll get to look at that in future episodes of Voyager as, um, as, as Janeway and the crew come face to face with multiple uh, cultures with their faiths and understanding. So we'll get to that. So I want to move us on now to the idea of two crews. Um, we've got the Marquis, Resistance Rebellion um, and the, the Federation. And um, and Elizabeth, last week uh, you talked about, and, and I, I loved it because it didn't really occur to me because, you know, I'm I'm Federation through and through. I've got my Starfleet uniform. I, you know, I, 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 I salute the flag of the Federation because I've grown up with them. Um, but uh, but they did uh, they did have this incongruity at the end where suddenly these rebels who are fighting the Federation and the one who'd been imprisoned, Tom Paris, by the Federation, now all proudly wearing the Starfleet uniform, uh, all standing together as one yeah. crew. And in, in her speech, which I included last week, Janeway says, We're alone in an uncharted part of the galaxy. We've already made some friends here and some enemies. We have no idea of the dangers we're going to face. But one thing is clear. Both crews are going to have to work together if we're to survive. That's why Commander Chakotay and I have agreed that this should be one crew. A Starfleet crew. A Starfleet crew. So, so it, it's a big shift, isn't it? One, two crews, one crew, yeah. It was, and it surprised me, especially with um, Bolana, with her um, half Klingon personality she keeps referencing. I was surprised that she slotted in so readily, but to me the whole thing held up that um, in this series, this ideal that the Federation kind of represents, and really, secretly, unless you're Mad Max, you all want to be part of that. And these people have gone through, obviously, the Starfleet Academy and they, they understand the values, even though they were rebelling. And, you know, there's something that I suppose, in a sense, it's like the American flag. Um, it's meant to twinge at your, pull at your loyalties and your morals and your ethics. And, you know, you have nowhere to go except back into this place of goodness. That's right. <laughs> That's it's like the old to me. Tim Brooke Taylor land of hope and glory speech, you know, where yes. you, 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 <laughs> you, you've got to do it for her and for the kingdom and for everyone. Like the Federation has that kind of, uh, ha has that kind of worship to it. Yeah. 
It did, but I just thought it was, you know, a very speedy transition and there didn't seem to be any resistance to it. And whatever they were fighting for seemed to just drop away, which given the interactions that we'd had between Chakotay and Paris and uh, also Balana, who seems to yell a lot and bang on doors and things, um, it was a bit unexpected, you know. So both of them seemed a bit more volatile and they're very angry when they find out that, um, is it Tuvok? Um, the Vulcan is actually a spy. Yep. You know, they don't take that well. And, of course, Paris, where does he fit? He's been imprisoned by the Federation and he's obviously a smarty pants. And yet they all just slot into this role and it's I captain. <laughs> I just found that a little incongruous. I'm sorry. Well, I, I think, I mean, to foreshadow, they are going to, you know, revisit that for the pretty much the whole of the first season and there's going to be ongoing mm. tensions and people are falling back into those two camps. But the thing that occurred to me as I was listening to you, uh, Elizabeth, is that the Maquis at their base are people who believe in the ideals of the Federation and believe mm. that the Federation itself was not living up to its ideals in the right. way that it made yeah. deals with Cardassia. So it's, yeah. it's not that they're necessarily ideologically opposed to the Federation. It's that they think the Federation isn't living up to its own standards. Um, and so then when you're cast to the other side of the galaxy uh, with uh, truly alien species with different ideals and different ways of thinking, I, I think there is, uh, you know, a sense in which it makes sense that they would... Uh, be happy together under that Federation banner as yeah. opposed to uh, things that were quite clearly not Federation. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Is that That's the philosophy we're actually putting in place? <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. I mean, that kind of makes sense, but it was a very swift transition. And I do notice that Lavin looked at, and I think it's three Star Trek episodes of Washover, they do do this. To me, it's just a device to solve some problems and finish the episode. And I've mentioned the other one with Paris mentioning um, rescuing Chakotay. You know, that was probably the most implausible and improbable thing I've ever seen. And they they got around it by simply not showing it. And the next thing you see is they're back safe on this starship and he's all fixed. Well, we've covered um, with the image of God and the deity and the prime directive. We've looked at the... Federation crews and the way they've come together. Um, we've got uh, a few minutes left in the podcast. Um, was there any other burning issues we wanted to, to get to today? Uh, just checking our notes as we've gone through uh, in, uh, in, in preparing for this episode today. Uh, another thing that occurred to me is that um, an ethical issue which I sometimes, you know, play around with in my mind is the way in which humans do or don't use our technical capacity to interfere with uh, animals. And so uh, uh, one of the interesting things I sometimes think about is there's often uh, sort of a concern that we shouldn't interfere with animals, that we shouldn't, you know, um, uh, do negative things which impact their ability to live and have normal lives, etc., etc. Uh, then the flip side of the coin for me becomes... Is it right then to interfere, uh, quote, for good? 
So I, I think about things like, uh, you know, the uh, um, Tasmanian uh, devil and uh, the particular disease that is causing uh, great attrition amongst those and the efforts that scientists are going to to try and uh, eradicate that disease and, and find some kind of cure or to uh, isolate parts of the population, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and the question is, is this an unethical interference? Should we allow, quote, nature, uh, evolutionary forces to take their place? And uh, if the Tasmanian devil is slated to die out because that's uh, the way that nature evolves, should we be interfering and trying to save them? Or, or is that unethical? Darwin's survival of the fittest, you know, yeah, if that, let them die if they're, if, they're, if they're not genetically prepared to make it into the next uh, era of, of existence, um, then, uh, then let, them, let them go. Or, or like you're saying, should we uh, genetically re-engineer our koalas so they can eat more than just one particular kind of gum leaf? Um, I you know, think like, we should stop cutting their habitat down. Goodness that's, me. That's true. There are also non, non-interventionist or genetic, there are, there are uh, things that we are already doing that we do that intervene into the lives of these, these beings. Uh, these animals that that we 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 ignore or don't acknowledge as well. You're right, Elizabeth. Well, I think that part of the issue we're facing with climate change and with habitat destruction and with wide scale pollution of rivers and soils and atmosphere, um, we are facing what's called the sixth great extinction of species. By the middle of this century, we'll have lost more than half of our species, and we have caused that. So I'm with the caretaker on this one without adopting particularly his methods of being a paternalistic God who makes all the decisions. I think that reversing the damage we have done, ceasing to do what we know is wrong. If you cut koala habitat down, you will eradicate the species eventually. If you change the climate and the temperatures and pollute things, and if we change um, the way that diseases and bacteria and viruses act, like our current pandemic, scientists have been predicting that because when you interfere with nature, this is the result that you get. So with Tasmanian devils, we have interfered with nature to the point that they have caught this disease. So do we have, as a result, like the caretaker said, I caused the destruction of the surface of the planet. I have some responsibility then to the people that I have disempowered and put in danger. And without being completely paternalistic, saving a species and working with them and studying them and having colonies then in the wild where they are not being um, just looked after like they are in a zoo, but they're actually being um, put back in there to breed and act like devils and be devils and repopulate the area that they should be in. I see that is where we diverge from the caretaker role. And we actually say we're going to save this species that we've caused this destruction to and put them back into the wild where hopefully they can go because the bottom line is, is the way humanity has behaved, this is our fault. Surely we have some obligation to rectify that. There you have it on the Star Trek Voyager podcast. Even the devil is worthy of saving. There you go. Isn't that <laughs> <Yes>. good? <laughs> That, that's actually how you can take things completely out of context uh, and, uh, and and misquote yes. things. But yes, indeed, and the devil, not the not the Tasmanian one, but the devil one. 
the actual devil. Yeah. If you cast him, use if you look at the wilderness story, which comes under our lectionary this week, and you actually look at him, the devil is reasonable, well versed in scripture, and a compassionate man. And he far wants be- to connect you with the rest of the world. You far can better. read it that way. Far better than the caretaker. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's right. So, you know, make of that what you will. So everything is not always what it seems. And being able to discern is really important. Well, I, I discern, Elizabeth, that uh, based on your your uh, avid, uh, you know, um, uh wanting us to uh, interfere to save the Tasmanian devil. Next on my list uh, is the uh, woolly mammoth. I I think if we can uh, (laughs) genetically recreate the woolly mammoth, we should do so to make up for all those... uh, all those hunters who who hunted them down. Lindsay, you're forgetting the most endangered species. You're forgetting the most endangered species on Earth, the polio virus. Um, uh, it's it's almost gone extinct, um, and uh, and we really need to be petitioning for its its rights to continue to exist. Now, just you you two are being very silly, and the woolly mammoth was extinct because of other things other than people hunting it. Um, so. But I think if we cause damage, you rectify it. We have a whole system predicated on that for good or for evil in the justice system, which isn't really a justice system. But, you know, it has the name of it, and hopefully it does some justice sometimes to people. Um, And it's about if you actually do harm, not to actually take responsibility for that and try and do something, even if it's just stop cutting down trees. You know, or stop pumping carbon dioxide into the air. We know the solution to this stuff and to ignore those solutions and to continue to think that we can keep doing that without irreplaceable, irreversible and lots of irre harms, not only to the species involved, to ourselves. We will join the sixth great extinction by the end of this century if we do not stop this. We just will. Because every species has its place it's all important in the way our very complex biosystems and ecosystems actually work. Who knows what eradicating the devil and the koala will mean for humanity? It will mean something. That's right. So we shouldn't just think of ourselves as top of the tree, but it will. Absolutely. It brings me back to Star Trek Four, one of the good ones, uh, The Journey Home, where uh, they, they discovered that uh, the entire future of the world was being thrown into peril because there were no longer any humpback whales in the oceans and that the alien species who cared about the humpback whales sent a probe from the other side of the universe to check in where they were going and discovered they weren't there and started destroying the planet. And so it was up to Kirk and his wonderful team to fly back in time and bring some whales back so they could communicate with the probe and tell it that everything was okay. And they repopulated the earth with humpback whales. Admiral, there'll be whales here. Well done, Mr. Scott. How soon can we be ready for warp speed? Full power now, sir. If you will, Mr. Sulu. Aye, sir. Warp speed. Um, interestingly, by making that movie, they also increased uh, society's interest in endangered species um, mm. and have, um, by making the movie, 
actually headed off the extinction of humpback whales. Uh, and now I saw an article the other day that was saying that because of Star Trek Four and other things, of course, can't take away the works of Greenpeace and other organisations, but but also because of the awareness created by Star Trek Four, the humpback whales are now in a population uh, that is uh, that is strong and sustainable. So, so, so I mean, these are issues that are covered by science fiction, and it isn't crazy to think that one day the koala may hold the the very key to our survival and future that we need. To bring it right back to uh, the caretaker, uh, like uh, we've already referred to Janeway's response to Tuvok when he says, but what about the Prime Directive? And she says, we're involved. We, we've got to make this decision. And, and you know, I think you're mm. pointing us to that, Elizabeth, that we are well and truly yeah, involved, involved in what is happening in our, in our earth and we have to make uh, the decisions, and we have to wrestle with these ethical decisions exactly as uh, Janeway and, and the rest of the Voyager crew do. And so from this point onwards, yeah. the Voyager no, carries it's... its butterfly effect on into the Delta Quadrant as it begins its journey <laughs> from one side to the other. Uh, the, the 75 years that it's going to take to get home, um, which ends up being seven, um, uh, actually uh, means that they, they actually... Uh, uh, accidentally stumble upon new life and new civilizations, randomly affecting them, um, and uh, and causing them to to deviate in different directions. So there's lots to explore there, uh, but I think we've done a much better job at, at, at talking about the actual story today, the two crews, the caretaker, uh, and that's brought us to the end. Any any final words before we bring uh, this uh, this second podcast of Voyager theological journey uh, to a close? Just an observation. Why did the caretaker think that a southern house party with lemonade and cookies and banjos was the normative way the crew would think about home? Just just an observation there. I think they had a low budget. Um, yep, I think I think they they, they probably used uh, somebody's farm uh, and a and, and a whole bunch of relatives for extras. That would be my guess. Ah, <laughs> uh, that sounds very reasonable, Will. <laughs> Lindsay. Yeah, no, I, I I think we've kind of uh, covered everything. I, I feel like um, you know this has been a good exploration, and it's leaving me really looking forward to to next week and a new episode. That's right. Yes, indeed. We, uh, we, we uh, are looking forward to next week where we hear the words from Janeway. There's coffee in that there nebula. Um, so um, <laughs> that will be good. Oh, did she really say that? That's... I thought that was, that was just a meme. Is that no, real? That's, that's an actual <laughs> thing, and we'll, we'll get that next week along with uh, a whole range of other, other opportunities. So, so join us then. You can find us uh, under the name Never Odd or Even Faith and Fiction. Uh, on wherever you find podcasts uh, and you'll see uh, the episodes uh, in amongst uh, the Deep Faith Nine episodes. Uh, please uh, keep up the conversation with us. We're loving your comments and interaction and we'll try to shout out to as many of our fans as possible. Uh, like and subscribe. I've been Will Nicholas. I'm Lindsay Cullen. I'm Elizabeth Rain. And we'll uh, see you uh, next week.